Welcome to another episode of the Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders on Washington, Wall Street, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is May the 4th, and may the 4th be with you. May Yoda be with all of our investment gurus out there whispering somewhat nonsensically in their ears, but great wisdom could be had by all. We certainly need it. We had the Fed yesterday. We've got new problems in the banking industry today. Pacific West Financial, Pac West suffering. Shares were down about 50% overnight, and it doesn't appear to be a credit issue. It doesn't appear to be an interest rate issue. It doesn't appear to be a portfolio issue. It appears to be a short seller issue. And you think, okay, if the bank is sound, why do they care about a short seller who's just going to drive their share price lower? Well, its depositors are now waking up and looking at the TVs this morning and last night saying, whoa, my bank's fallen in half. Is it going to be another one of those that gets washed through the FDIC? Am I going to have my deposits soon owned by JP Morgan because they're going to seemingly own everything sooner or later? Um, and it becomes self-fulfilling. It erodes confidence. It could lead to withdrawals. I don't know, but Pacific West has been in pretty good shape. They've added the deposits in April, uh, even here in early May, added to deposits. End of March, added to deposits. So they didn't see that run. It's been a decent bank. Um, and this is a whole new line of pressure here. So we need to watch. Also had Jay Powell's speak, speech and press conference yesterday. Uh, one of, I think, his most effective press conferences ever. And the reason I say it is he basically entertained the idea of pausing and while doing that, managed to sound hawkish. Now that was a great uh, acrobatic feat that the Fed chairman pulled off yesterday. He threw two things out there, though, that sort of caught me a, a little bit by surprise. One was he started by saying the banking system is sound. That's a big deal. The Federal Reserve chairman started his remarks with the banking system is sound. He's trying to get the confidence of the Federal Reserve back into the banking system. Good faith and credit. How about that good faith? They've got credit. That's not the problem. Can they get the good faith of the central bank re-imbued into the banking system where faith is a bit shaky? The second thing he did was to say that he disagreed with the staff. Uh, the staff is saying, we're going to go into some sort of mild recession. He says, we disagree. Well, that's interesting politically. We're going to talk about all this with my great friend, Jim Labenthal from Serity Partners, CNBC contributor and just one of the wisest and nicest guys you ever get to talk to. Very, very thoughtful. Welcome back, Jim. Michael, it's great to be with you. These are momentous times. I'm really happy to discuss them with you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, on behalf of our audience, we're very grateful. We're very grateful to you. Uh, where do you want to start? I didn't even cover. Jim, I had three or four more things I could have covered in my opening remarks. I just simply ran up against my two-minute time limit there. So uh, you, you, you want to go with banks? You want to go with the Fed? You want to go somewhere else? 
Well, I think we have to start with banks, but I do want to eventually segue into some of the positive things that are going on. There are positive things like earnings and the continuing Love you, strength. Love continuing. you. Got to get to the positive. But but we have to start with the banks because that is the biggest thing. And I was listening to your opening monologue and I, there was a word that really caught or a phrase that really caught my ear was when you said the Fed is trying to insert its confidence in the banking system into the market. And then the next thing, the next words that came out of your mouth, uh, mouth were something like good faith. And I thought you were going to say good luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always shocked that you actually listen to what I say. I, that makes one of us. I barely listen when I, you know, you can, it's hard to listen when you're busy talking. Yeah, let's start with this, uh, the, the bank and the Fed. And I'm going to I'm going to say something caustic. I don't mean it to be aggressive, but I just really believe this. I believe this is a completely inept Fed, and I, I believe we now have six years of uh, a track record from this Federal Reserve upon which to base this. Now, I went on a little bit of a rant on air yesterday. I won't be as aggressive right now. I'll just simply point out that, you know, well, you go back, you go back five years ago, you know, this was a Federal Reserve that said uh, we're a long way from the neutral rate on Fed funds rate. And three months later, three months after that was cutting interest rates. Then we had the, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Then we had the Jackson Hole Symposium of, I think, 2020, maybe it was 2021, where they said they're going to let inflation run hot. It runs hot. They say it's transitory. I mean, the, the, the list of missteps, not just being behind the curve, but actual mistakes, is prolific with this Fed. Now, I that's commentary. I very strongly believe that. But that's also... That that's just the world we're living in. Okay, I'm not complaining about it. I'm observing it. I'm gonna. So I'm now gonna, we've got. I, may, may I take the other side of that? Go right ahead. I, I, I any I, I I do it with uh, trepidation anytime. Uh, but I I would say, Jim, that this Fed uh, when they might have been a bit dovish early on uh, when met with the great when they when they met with the pandemic. Uh, and a complete shutdown of the not only U.S. economy, the global economy, were right to start to put cash into the economy. I think they kept it in too long. I think they, there was a huge mistake. Uh, and I think they are they have made other mistakes. But a lot of the things that they did, I thought that if I had been Fed chairman or you had been Fed chairman in the spring of 2020, we would have done the same things to keep the economy alive. Uh, now, uh, they, they, they did make some mistakes. Um, the idea of transitory, they were right and they were wrong. Uh, commodity prices were transitory. Those supply chain issues for uh, lumber, for instance, and shipping costs, they have been transitory, went straight up and went straight down. The overall nature of transitory that they got wrong, I think, came from the huge balances of consumer cash that were basically, uh, of course, uh, sent out and injected into the system by both the fiscal, but, but they were easing monetary, but the fiscal side got crazy too, um, in a way that was probably somewhat coordinated, but um, it's been a difficult time. I don't, uh, I don't think they're the worst Fed ever. I think they've made some really kind of bonehead mistakes, and I think not the least of which is uh, they should have paused sooner to see what's going on. I did talk to Jeff Lacker. Uh, he says the neutral, he says, you got to go to six and a half percent. They're nowhere near close what they have to do. Uh, they're, they're 
barely, arguably not at a neutral rate yet. And they've got to get to six and a half percent on Fed funds. That sounds to me to be disastrous. And I argued with Lacker and said, why can't they wait till September? Why can't we get through this debt ceiling? Why can't we watch the data for three months? What's the downside there? And I'm not sure that Jeff answered me other than he came back with an academic answer that here are the numbers and here's what you have to do. Go ahead, Jim. Tell me why I've got that wrong. <laughs> do we have any time left, Michael? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm not going to go back over all of that because it misses the point. Um, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree with you. And there's there's one thing I want to point out, which is that, OK, they didn't make a mistake in the spring of 2020, right? They, they cut rates and they did right. quantitative easing. The fact that they didn't make a mistake then does not excuse the excuse the prolific number of mistakes that they've made. Um, Fair. I, I, and, and, you know, why don't we focus to what matters right now, which is the 25 basis point hike that they did yesterday. It has it, it's going to have no effect on the economy, on inflation. The only effect it's going to have is to pressure the banking system by further raising deposit funding costs for the banks. That's the only effect that's going to have. The difference to the economy from four and three quarters at the low end of the range to 5% at the low end of the range is immaterial. But to the banks and to your opening comment about the short sellers, they're laughing all the way to the bank because they just realized that what the Fed is doing only hurts the banks. It's the only thing it does. Now, what we've got to discuss, you and I, I think, is can this economy make it through this banking crisis? Um, that's that's a subject of debate. Now, I think it can, but if you catch my words and tone, I'm far from certain. I'm far from certain. What I'm banking on right now is the fact that the labor market continues to be strong, meaning that there is a lot of cushion in this economy for the effects of the Fed, again, on the banking system, to uh, play out and not tip the economy into recession. We had the ADP numbers uh, yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Uh, yeah. 300,000 300, jobs roughly yeah. uh, in April. Um, GDP last quarter, a little bit disappointing, but still positive at 1.1%. It was lower than expected simply because inventories deaccumulated, which they should. Consumer spending was strong, and that's the key to the economy, meaning you know inventories will go up and down, and maybe they'll restock inventories this quarter. I don't know. Um, right now, we're too early in the quarter, uh, you know, one month into the quarter to really say, but indications are positive through the month of April for the economy continuing to expand. Yes. But probably the most important thing, no, the labor market's the most important thing. The second most important thing is profits. Profits are now for the first quarter of 2023 coming in almost 4% better than expectations. And that's meaningful. That's meaningful. That gives momentum to companies to continue to expand, to hire. And we see the hiring lowered, again. In lowered expectations, numbers. Jim. Lowered expectations. Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, that's fine. Um, you know, where, where we are right now in year-over-year -year growth, right now, where we are through the earnings season and with projections for the rest of it, is that earnings will decline 2% year-over-year. Yes. At the beginning of this quarter, those expectations were for a decline of 6.8%. Yes. I will grant the accuracy of what you just said. Expectations were dramatically lowered. They're being dramatically exceeded. Dramatically. Yes. So both statements can be true. 
Well, we've lowered the bar enough. Even I can jump over it. Phil yeah, Mickelson, this is a pretty Phil Mickelson maybe no. Phil Mickelson, maybe no. Have you ever seen Phil Mickelson, that thing where he tried to jump when he won that thing? He barely, it, he couldn't clear a dollar bill. I mean, the the, the vertical <laughs> jump on Phil is, is, uh, is tough. Um, you know, uh, Jim, very good points, of course, because you look immediately at the two-month 60-day Treasury bill this morning at 526, three-month right there at 525. And, you know, investors are seeing that going, why am I keeping my money in a bank that's paying me 1%? Uh, I, look, Jim, I'm going to call uh, one of my banks this morning. I've already called one and I bought a CD and the CD still counts as a deposit for the bank. OK, the CD still counts as a deposit for the bank, uh, which is why I'm buying CDs, even though uh, I'm not going to get the same rate I could get in Treasury bills. But I, I, I think I, I'm feeling actually patriotic about transferring my money into CDs, but uh, I can get better than 4% in a, in a one-year CD. So at least I'm going to do that. But um, five and a quarter percent on a three-month bill is pretty compelling when things are dicey, isn't it? And when you aren't earning interest anywhere else? It, it is. And I, I think we both know that we're, we're missing the punchline here, which is that the issue with the pressure on deposit funding costs at the banks is going to lead them to lend a lot less, right? Yes. That's the that's the deleterious effect on the economy. Um, and that's why you're hearing me phrase things about there is saying things like there is enough cushion in this economy to absorb the decline in lending that's coming. Now, whether it's the banking system or the economy overall, what I expect is going to happen is that the big are going to get bigger and the weak are going to fall by the wayside and get accumulated into the big. And again, this is for the banking system and the economy overall. But PacWest, PacWest wasn't weak. I mean, there's nothing really wrong at PacWest that I can tell other than they're the victims of a short run. Uh, I, thank you for bringing this up because it allows me to say one of my favorite movie lines of all time. The Unforgiven, great Clint Eastwood movie. It, I believe it won uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. At the end, Clint Eastwood is hovering with a shotgun over Gene Hackman, about to put him out of his misery. And Gene Hackman goes, I don't deserve this. I'm a good man. I've lived a good life. Clint Eastwood's line, deserves, got nothing to do with it. Deserve. And that's the situation we're in right now. First Republic wasn't a bad bank. They underpriced some mortgages. Okay, it wasn't it wasn't bad credit. Uh, same thing. You know, I don't really know PacWest, but it looks like it's the same thing. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Uh, I, your I, I headline wish for this week, Harry. Hmm? Deserves got nothing to do with it. Quote Jim Labenthal. The, the hell with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, from Jim, my favorite quotation from Jim Labenthal. All right, Jim. Uh, you know, I, I used up, I've used up so much time running my mouth. I still need to hear more from you. And yet I'm getting, I've got a, only about a minute left. What did you think about the, do you, do you agree with the Fed staff now, given this new banking pressure on credit uh, to slow the economy in addition to what the Fed's doing? Are you thinking perhaps the Fed staff is right and that there's a chance of a mild recession coming? Do you think it's likely at this point? There's a meaningful chance that I've been saying for quite some time that uh, me and my firm, Sarity Partners, have had it at 35% for the recessionary landing. We may have to raise that, frankly. Um, but what I would point out here, this to me is very important, is that very, very few people are calling for a deep, dark recession. 
The people who are calling for a deep, dark recession are the usual negative people, you know, the Nuriel Rubinis, the Jeremy Granthams of the world. The nattering people, negative nabobs. Yeah, I don't want to be too, you know, derogatory. I think we have well, to dance with the possibility. I'm just quoting Richard Nixon. I mean, when you want to get net negative, you quote Nixon, right? I know, I know. Uh, but the Fed staff, to whom you referred, are predicting a short, shallow recession. If that's the case, and if it's located in the second half of this year, we all know that the markets look forward a good six months. So when you get into the summer and the late summer, the market's going to be looking into 2024. And if that's a condition in which we're coming out of a recession and which earnings are growing again, uh, that, that, that could put some wind in the sails of the markets. So I'm not sure we need to worry about a crash landing so much as a bumpy landing, which is what a short, shallow recession would be. If the S&P 500 is at 4,100, more or less, uh, the next 10% takes you to 4,500, um, almost on the nose. Uh, you really, you, you, we're 18 and a half times earnings. You really think uh, investors should step in to buy the market here, thinking that the next 10% is going to be up and that that's a worthwhile risk to take, all things considered, given you can take five and a quarter percent in the U.S. Treasury short term? No, I don't think investors should buy the market. You know where I'm going with this. You're such a tease. Um, you have to buy <laughs> sectors and stocks within the markets. Okay. So yeah, the market's trading at 18 times overall. Look at where Fang's trading, right? It's trading in the high to mid twenties mostly. On the other hand, if you look in the more cyclical sectors, including the bigger banks, you've got stocks that are in some cases trading below book value, meaningful dividend yield, multiples that are in the sometimes single digits, depending on which sector you're looking at, you can find good industrials in the mid to low teens as far as a multiple. And I think those are those are good valuations to pay for stocks and sectors that actually have a good chance of appreciating their earnings much more than the FANG stocks because of the things you always hear me talking about, supply chain onshoring, infrastructure spending, and the pent-up industrial demand of Boeing and the auto manufacturers catching up on deferred production. If you look at those charts of airplane deliveries, automobile production over the last three years, there is a tremendous gap that still needs to be filled still needs to be filled. You can drive by uh, deal auto dealerships and see the inventory is still way, way too low. Uh, sounds like a short term ongoing choppiness, uh, caution uh, from Labenthal, know what you all own, know why you own it, never abandon uh, uh, stocks in America, but you can be cautious about the broad market. Uh, and he continues to sound reasonably optimistic for the long term. I think he is always, Jim, I think you've always been long-term bullish as long as I've known you. And and so have I. I am a long-term, I'm a perma-bull. Short-term, I'm a little bit nervous here. Can I just, before we close, just make this remark that I like the way you phrase that in, in tone and content. I, I don't think that if we do get a recession, if the market goes down from here, I don't think we're in the middle of a three-year bear market. I, I the, the economic conditions seem too strong. Anybody who's out and about, if you're traveling, if you're going into restaurants, um, it, you know, the automobile manufacturers, Visa, everybody's saying this isn't a weak economy right now. And I think that's the main point I would make. This doesn't feel like we're in, the, in 2009. It just doesn't feel like that. You know, we had 9.2% nominal GDP growth 
we had 7%, 7.1% inflation last year to give us 2.1% real GDP growth. But even the nominal rate at 9%, I mean, this, is a, this has been a strong uh, economy. Uh, I guess my point would be a little bit different. There's one different answer that I'm giving today. When you see a market trading at all-time highs or near them at 4,100 on an S&P, I'm going to say, of course, you have to look at individual stocks and there's always value to be discovered. But uh, if uh, this market were to uh, drop 800 points, 20%, uh, you would hear me saying something different, which would be, yeah, you could probably just step in and buy the S&P and you'll be just fine and I would probably do it right now. So at certain levels, when things really get dicey, that's when you buy. My point is, though, the world feels dicey. The numbers aren't dicey. And that's the reason for caution. Jim Labenthal is a partner at Sarity Partners. He manages a lot of money. He helps a lot of clients, individuals, institutions, all sorts of folks manage their lives, help them get through their money and gets through their money and their wealth and achieve their goals over the long term, work towards them anyway. Jim Labenthal, on, he's just a good guy. Thank you, Jim, for being with us. Michael, it's always good to be with you. I'll close with follow far. There you go. Listen to Labenthal. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. A little bit short and forecast this week. Only two guests, Labenthal and Mahaffey. Who else do you need? We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us this week on the forecast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to The Farcast, where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Joining me now, as he does every week, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, also our senior political analyst on The Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Good to be talking to you. Where are you this morning, Dan? It looks like a new background. Uh, joining you from Winneka, Illinois, just north of Chicago. Winnetka, Illinois. I'll be in Chicago next week, folks. I'm going to be speaking at the Matheson Financial Conference, as I do every year. I'm also going to be giving a talk for Hightower Advisors uh, with Dan uh, and with a senior economist from Wells Fargo on the debt ceiling. That's going to be live streamed for Hightower on Monday afternoon. Really looking forward to that, Dan. Then I've got dinner with Bob Oros afterwards. Uh, all out there in Chicago. Were you going to be in Chicago for that? Is there a chance to see you? Unfortunately in not. I'll be back in Washington. Okay. All right. Uh, Dan, okay, let's take a look. We've got a couple of things we've just got to talk about. Uh, we have a debt ceiling coming up. You saw Jay Powell yesterday. I also listened to Elizabeth Warren on CNBC yesterday uh, with uh, Tyler Matheson and Kelly Evans. It was a long interview, and Senator Warren did an outstanding job. She did an outstanding job of being affable, reasonable. Uh, her interview was compelling. Now, stick with me, listeners. Stick with me, all my Republican listeners out there. My Democratic listeners are all cheering right now and said, oh, Farr just said something nice about Elizabeth Warren. I will always say something nice. I really try to do my best to call him as I see him. And it was a great interview. And she showed very well. Senator Warren doesn't always show 
particularly well. Uh, she can come off as a little angry. She did not yesterday. It was a very effective interview. She made her points. She defended her position. I disagreed with good part of it, but she made some very good points and she did it very well. Uh, and then, of course, we listened to the chairman come out and give his great speech. Uh, and uh, Dan, what do you make of what's going on in Washington, both from Capitol Hill, Senator Warren's position about what the Fed should be doing and what the bank should be doing and everything else? Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think you have the, uh, you know, first and foremost, let's look at how there was the response to uh, Secretary Yellen's announcement that the date, in fact, had been pulled forward. And right, you right. had... Uh, you know, in some instances where actually you saw, even though that we will have this meeting now next week, finally getting everyone together to to chat about this, uh, both sides really dug in. So I guess we're still in the denial phase of this. And the ultimate problem is you've got to get to bargaining and then acceptance. These are the stages of death and dying, Dan. Kubler I know this Ross, is the stages of solving the this. debt ceiling. <laughs> the so the you have five to stages of debt of the of the debt ceiling and dying. Is that what you're <laughs> but what you have to do is when you you what is the bargaining? What are we seeing now in these negotiations? Because look, the Republicans, of course, are the only ones with a plan. They've at least put something forward. But it is just that, like we discussed last week, a plan. It is not a full budget proposal. It's a stalking horse. It's a stalking horse. And also a lot of people will point out, we, it just sets us up to do the same thing again next year. It really is not a long-term fix to this. And it would continue to be a political back and forth going through this uh, uh, presidential election cycle as well. Uh, so, look, we need to get to the negotiations. And then it is the question of, you know, once they're the bargaining, what's the acceptance? What are you going to get through the House? And that's where we start to have to break down both who are the Republicans who could flip or some of the Democrats who might uh, help McCarthy get something across if he does lose votes. You have to start to consider those scenarios. As well as, frankly, looking, we're running out of legislative days on the calendar uh, to get this done unless they start to uh, burn the midnight oil. Um, so it, 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 we've got Congress going to be actually in session for 12 days in May. Uh, six on only six of those days will President Biden also be in town, though the president stays in pretty good communication no matter where he is. 12 days in the month of May that they're going to be in town. Uh, they can, of course, choose to stay in if need be. What are the odds that that something happens? I mean, you, I, I've looked, uh, um, th there are a bunch of different options for the way this thing could end. The Washington Post this morning is outlining five. One, Biden and McCarthy make a deal. Two, the Democrats do an end run using something called a discharge petition. Three, uh, there's uh, uh, a temporary uh, suspension of the ceiling. Four, the White House can go ahead and figure out something like its trillion-dollar coin. Or five, we actually default on the debt. Uh, right, and and I think and I think you know the, there's actual default, 
And then I think there's the ones we talk about, either the, the coin, the, you know, there's this debate about the 14th Amendment, but the White House has shied away with that in the courts. All those things kind of put you in the in, in the banana republic territory. And then you have the still the question, though, the, the way that you would get that Biden-McCarthy deal, can McCarthy turn around and deliver that through the house can he get that through that row of no as you've described them uh and that would be the big question otherwise he would need democrats to support him and then option two the the discharge petition that is something that would take time and as you talk about with the only 12 days remaining i don't think there's enough time for that to work unless something really moved quickly uh, or they've had something waiting in the wings but we've heard nothing of anything like that going on in the background because no one's wanted to weaken the negotiating positions by having any kind of plan B negotiations going on. Right. So uh, no plan B negotiations um, uh, going on. Uh, if, okay, if you have this meeting uh, with Biden and McCarthy and indeed they can come to terms, if I'm Kevin McCarthy, I'm going to say, Mr. President, here are the votes I have to get that done. I need you to corral Democrats to vote for this. We have now agreed you've got to deliver those Democratic votes. And while that may work, will that imperil uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker? Will that immediately trigger one of those votes if he does an end run around his no? Yeah, that's no. certainly the end of Kevin McCarthy's speakership. The uh -huh. moment he requires Democratic votes to get this solved, this is the... It's it's the default versus McCarthy's career versus a deal. Mm. Solve any predictions, solve Dan? Supply. Give me a prediction, Dan. Look, I think what we're going to see near term, this is going to dig in. I don't think we're going to see anything miraculous come out of this upcoming meeting. I think both sides are going to keep digging in on this. McCarthy, I'm just not sure what he can deliver beyond what they've already put forward, which is still a, a non-starter. Uh, the showdown type moments we talk about, again, I worry about a, a 2008 TARP-like situation where Congress goes to the brink um, and default is a very different brink than a, you know, one missed bailout vote, but it's a very similar kind of brinksmanship with both parties as well as economic reality. Well, as we look back at 2011, the Treasury Secretary all of a sudden will start to prioritize payments. Uh, who gets paid? Who doesn't get paid? The government gets shut down, right? Government workers are, says, don't, don't come in and you're not going to get paid for this time and you're furloughed and this happens and that happens. And the Treasury Secretary starts to go through this these machinations that buy time, that buy time. Until finally, we'll you know, you have uh, the threat that Social Security recipients and veterans aren't going to receive uh, benefit checks and the political temperature gets so hot that they all finally cave. But uh, you need the row of no to cave. And they didn't cave 16 different times, 15 different times on naming a Speaker of the House, even if it meant that we did not have a Congress in place, which, ladies and gentlemen, we didn't have a Congress in place until they had that vote for the Speaker to convene. Speaker had let's to remember, convene the let's Congress. Michael, let's remember, too, that zoom out that this is all taking place, too, while Biden will be going to the G7 summit. We talk about U.S. leadership 
the idea of U.S. financial leadership. We've written about it. All this playing around with the debt ceiling imperils that at a time when you see Brazil, China, Russia, even India trying to figure out ways to not use the U.S. dollar anymore. Dan, when you saw the Fed chairman uh, speak yesterday, heard his report, we heard Jim Labenthal said that this has been the biggest train wreck of a Fed in his memory. I don't entirely agree with that. Uh, I do not suggest that they have not been without uh, a plethora of sins. They have. I just kind of understand them a little bit more, um, uh, given the remarkable times through which they've been navigating. They have gotten some things right. I think they've gotten some things wrong. I wish they would pause and stay on pause for quite a while now. Politically, Dan, what does it mean in Washington? And I, Dan, I'm going to tell you one more thing. In 2009, uh, at the end, of the markets changed. We were in this huge, great financial crisis. Stocks were plummeting uh, in 2008, 2009. We saw bank stocks losing 50% of their value. We saw bonds trading at 60 cents on the dollar for all the banks and the financial institutions, the Morgan Stanleys and everything else. Pennies on a dollar in 2008 over the summer. It was a big mess and it lasted for months. Coming into the lows of March, uh, in 2009, things changed. What changed, I asked a former Fed president, regional Fed president, and he said, after I pushed him around for a while, because he first started giving me a bunch of economic blather, uh, and I said, look, if you're not going to tell me, don't tell me. He said, all right, you believed us. I said, what? He said, you believed us. We said that we were going to have stress tests for the banks. And we didn't tell you the criteria for those stress tests. We just waited 30 days and told you that 85% of the banking system was sound, that we tested it and they are sound. And another 10% needed a little bit of remediation. And there were 5% of the banks we were concerned with, but the overall health of the banking system was sound. Therefore, you believed us. We took the good faith of the, of the Federal Reserve Bank and put it back out into the banking system where it had been eroding and you believed us. So the credibility of the Fed here, ladies and gentlemen, is hugely important. And Jay Powell tried it yesterday. He started his comments by saying the banking system is sound. And I'm not sure we believed him, Dan. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to Jim Labenthal's point, if you think that they have just messed this thing up uh, beyond uh, 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 imagination, then uh, perhaps you're not going to listen. Uh, so tell me what you think about that. And what is Washington saying about the Federal Reserve, the economy and the banks? Well, look, the Federal Reserve has always been in some kind of political crosshairs. And for a while, the discussion was about inflation and that call uh, being wrong and the, the sense of, you know, how much could that be blamed on the Fed versus uh, supply factors or or Putin. Look, the the banking issues fall much more squarely in their portfolio. The the blame is much easier in a political sense with them as the regulator. And when you see uh, data like the Gallup poll saying nearly half of Americans don't have confidence that their money is safe uh, in the banks, uh, that starts to tell you that you're getting a broader sense of a breakdown in confidence. Uh, you know, banking is fundamentally an exercise in faith in many ways. Uh, and if Americans are starting to lose faith in, in the Fed and banking institutions again, 
it, it is concerning because look, the, the nuances don't translate to the average voter. Uh, and then that's going to be the political pressure. But, you know, the nuances don't translate that Silicon Valley was mainly, uh, you know, right. VC right. portfolios or that First Republic right. was high net worth mortgages. No, that doesn't get through when you see the the headlines that now a, a third or fourth or, or, you know, now a fifth bank might be wobbling. Uh, look, this does raise concerns, uh, but also questions about in a political sense, what is going to be the response? And in a, in a way, we've seen policymakers largely stand back and say, this is the Fed's job, though, to figure out. Certainly, the heat is being turned up under the Fed for many reasons now. Uh, but that is yet to translate into lawmakers getting in the way of their response. So I would still keep that in mind. I think we've reached the point, Dan, where the government does has to have to stop in now. I don't see that this contagion is stopping on its own. It's had every reason to stop on its own. So what has to happen now, I believe, is that the government has to come in and say, all right, the FDIC insurance is going to be increased to a million dollars in deposits for the next two years, 12 months, something like that. There has to be, it has to be clear to all depositors uh, very clearly that their assets are, are safe in those banks. And once they don't have a safety reason to leave, then we can deal with the yield reason to leave. Uh, and I'm going to certainly suggest to my listeners to explore the CDs at your bank. Um, I think there I think that there are better yields there and it doesn't impair the bank's futures or deposits. So uh, I, I that's what I'm going to do today um, and 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 take advantage of some higher yields while not impairing any of my my banks. But uh, there needs to be I, I don't I don't see this going away. And when people can figure out how they can really profit like these short sellers by driving down and putting the spike through the heart. Uh, of one of a, of a perfectly healthy bank, then, and the confidence of the Fed doesn't do it, then the wallet has to do it. It's good faith and credit. If your good faith doesn't work, you better show up with your credit. And I think it's time for credit. Dan, final word for next week. What are you watching? Look, I'm keeping an eye on Biden's agenda as he starts to look to these overseas trips, but it's going to be all about that meeting uh, with the congressional leaders on the debt ceiling next week. Dan Mahaffey, Senior Vice President, Director of Policy for the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our Senior Political Analyst on the Farcast. Thank you, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast here on May the 4th. And may the 4th be with you until next week, covering Wall Street, Washington, and the world. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. That's a wrap on this abbreviated episode of the Farcast. Thanks to this week's guests, Jim Labenthal and Dan Mahaffey. Join us next week as we welcome scheduled special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former chairman of the Richmond Fed. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week and you can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. 
We would like to remind you that the Parcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in the podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farm Miller & Washington or Hightower Advisors, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller & Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help and and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, stay healthy. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not verify the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Far Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.